Hello, and welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee. Today, we're here in the bunker with John Doolin, our friend who was trained as a physicist, worked in machine learning for a few years, and is, has always had a passion for what he calls defense technology, which I call weapons technology. Um, <laughs> and he's he's now uh, founding a stealth mode startup in, in defense technology, so-called. Um, yes. And yeah, so we brought him on to, to just chat about this interesting area of what's going on in military technology and what it all means. Uh, so welcome, John. Thank you, Wolf. Yes, and it is defense uh, yeah, for yeah. deterrence, uh-huh, uh-huh. for peace. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is a big landmark. This is actually my first ever podcast. I think I'm minted as a millennial now. Great. All right. Well, welcome to the club. Uh, okay. So the first thing we're going to talk about is try to get the lay of the land on what's the current state of defense technology and and American defense posture, largely from a technological point of view. Just just what's out there? What's going on? What are the secret UFOs they got in the back room? What's the mm. what's the cool plans that are being worked on? What is the actual structure of sort of the the more normal parts of of the the, the technology stack right now? And and how has this been changing over the last 50 years, 20 years, how it will be changing over the next 10, 20 years? Um, let's just get a good lay of the land here. That'll give us uh, a ground to stand on for talking about a bunch of other stuff. Absolutely. I think now is the most exciting time to ask that question. Great. Because our lives really over the last 30 years have been defined by this journey that defense in the United States has gone on. We have only lived in the era of Pax Americana, Mm -hmm. where the United States was the one true superpower. And now, more than any time in the last 30 years, that has been challenged. Right. And that challenge from China and Russia's technological advancements is an opportunity for our institutions and our defense industry to prove themselves again and see if they can reestablish that excellence and superiority that they've had for the last 30 years. Now, why they've had that superiority uh, is in itself interesting. And it's something we've taken for granted. The Pentagon had a strategy in the defense spending boom of the 80s to create something called the third offset. And third offset was the investment using a lot of technologies from the Apollo project, I might add, Mm -hmm. to usher in such excellence and quality and technological superiority in American weapons that we would have unparalleled superiority. And actually, we've been coasting on this for the last 40 years. I remember reading reading a document, I think from the 70s or 80s, the strategy of technology that uh was about like uh the great power conflict as a technological conflict about how uh it, it, it comes down to these sort of fundamental innovations and staying ahead on technology and it, it's not the kind of war that you can see yourself losing uh in the sense that you, you notice when you're losing you just notice once the other guy's just way ahead on technology and has total superiority yes anyways very interesting stuff anyway so they, they put in this posture yeah. So technically, that was actually the second offset. The third offset is what we're trying to achieve now. This is offset in the sense of offsetting the United States. Raw superiority yeah. in weapons technology. Okay. Yes. And this is what was on show 
about the time I was born, 1992, you know, yeah. 1991, uh, the United States had not fought a major conflict since Vietnam. And then we spent all this money in the 70s and 80s productizing a lot of technologies that were nascent in the 60s and 70s. And then when we returned to a major field of conflict in Desert Storm, the United States shocked the world with the ease with which we you know, defeated the Soviet model Iraqi army. We That was the first time lasers and GPS and stealth and- Lasers were deployed in that conflict? Or just as like- Guidance. Guidance uh, and targeting, okay. Yeah. Guidance and targeting lasers, laser designation, precision munitions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, major use of standoff weapons like decoys and Tomahawk missiles. Yeah, the stealth aircraft. Yeah, the, the F-117, all of these technologies we built and perfected, brought them to the forefront all at once. And in the 90s, because Russia's defense industry fell apart and there wasn't money to productize any of these things or even perfect some of the ones they didn't have. And China was in many ways still developing and, mm-hmm. and still is their local technological ability. Mm-hmm. When you look at the weapon systems that are the backbone of the American military today, they were all designed and built 30 and 40 years ago. Your F-15s, your F-16s, your Apaches, your Abrams. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that stuff, like you look at the dates on some of those jet fighters and and there was a real uh, sort of cohort of yeah. new things coming out in the 70s in particular. Like I think the, the F-16, the F-18 and so on are both from the 70s. Some interesting stuff happening in the, in the 80s, like uh, the stealth uh stealth planes and so on yeah and it was a peak of a lot of physics projects so like we haven't improved much on you know things like depleted uranium penetrators and composite armor for tanks and there hasn't been massive breakthroughs in jet engines but we've spent a lot of money sustaining these platforms with new features and new computers here and there but really their superiority is being eroded. Right. Yeah, everyone um, else is starting to catch up. Yeah. Um, now, of course, the ultimate, you know, new plus alpha weapon of deterrence and peace is the atomic weapon. Yeah, the bomb. But the story there is also the same. We're using the Tridents and Minuteman 2s from the 80s and indeed the same warheads. And it is time to renew those two to make sure they're reliable. Right. So what's been happening over the last 15 years... Uh, then like this, the, we've, we've talked a lot about all this new stuff that was happening in the eighties, but I get the sense that there's sort of a lot of new stuff happening now as well with drones networking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously like the whole F-35 thing, <laughs> uh, the F-22, like, yeah. there, there's a bunch of stuff that's been happening more recently. Um, so what's kind of like the current state of things where, where's the development happening Yeah, and, and what are the most important parts of the military posture right now? Well, one thing that is making this new offset necessary is two trends that occurred in less liberal adversarial great power nations, Russia and China. Mm -hmm. One is they just became rich again. Mm -hmm. So they can afford research on these technologies like stealth and premium jet engines and precision guided munitions to catch up on us. Uh, But also... With the explosion of personal computing uh, and now cloud computing and the collapse of computing over the last several decades, 
it's easy for everyone, not just the United States, to solve problems with computing and put chips right. in everything. So this right. makes things like precision-guided munitions and standoff weapons, uh, but also things like signal processing to uh, search out and find stealth fighters yeah, and yeah, make satellites cheaper. Yeah, yeah. Now, what this all leads to requiring the United States to do to reestablish a superiority, I think largely has to do with how that change of pace and how the ubiquity of cheap computing requires us to structure the battlefield. So I think when you browse defense news and defense contracts, a few big themes come through to me. One of them is just faster weapons, faster yeah. platforms that have longer reach. Right. Um, so these are like hypersonics, hypersonic missiles, jets with better fuel efficiency, longer crews like the F-22, mm. uh, but also hyper endurance drones that can fly for 25 hours or more. Right. They can just hang out there and loiter and, until they're needed. Right. Right. But also ubiquitous satellites to do things like persistent ISR, intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. Uh, ubiquitous satellites to keep an eye on things and provide sensor data and knowledge mm -hmm. to these platforms, which now can reach further and react faster. And then finally, autonomy to make these tools, these sensors and shooters uh, smarter when they need to perceive, adapt to, and respond to events which are happening very, very quickly because other platforms are faster and are autonomous. So if I think abstractly, the future battlefield is being compressed in space. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason it's being compressed in space is because time is accelerating. Mm -hmm. We have had instantaneous communication for some time, like 30 years. Right. And we must now actually make the rate at which our armed forces can respond to news events and changes in the world, announcements from foreign governments and terrorist attacks and threats match that pace. Right, right. So... We now have partly from computer modeling of aerodynamic structures, partly from breakthroughs in ceramics, a broad push for hypersonic missiles and hypersonic drones. Mm -hmm. so, so China and Russia already have the hypersonics, or at least China does, right? Uh, and, and America's actually playing catch up on the hypersonic uh, missiles. There's a perception of that. Is, I, I think China and Russia... In the background? Well, I suspect it's kind of like the space race where... Right. Everyone thought that Russia was ahead, but the fact of the matter was they just cared about it before we did, and there was never any doubt who was technologically superior. Sure, yeah. Um, now that it's a priority, I think that will be borne out. So, so hypersonic missiles have become a priority. So, for for uh, for Russia and China, like the obvious application of, especially China, the obvious application for hypersonic missiles is you know, taking out American or at least threatening American aircraft carriers. And so what's what's sort of like the major application for hypersonic missiles in, in our kind of defense posture? Like if we, you know, yeah. if, if they're going to get deployed on, on the field, is this just a replacement for cruise missiles or is this uh, some more specific type of capability? Like, because I, I guess they're sort of, in some sense, they're just cruise missiles that can almost outrun uh, most like anti-missile defenses. That that's kind of the idea with the hypersonics. Yes, right? and actually, 
that is the fundamental reason they're important to Russia and China. If you if you actually stop thinking about a lot of the conventional stuff for a moment, which I know is fun, it's all I do, and look at the fundamentals of deterrence between great powers, which is nuclear weaponry. Right. I think an important thing to understand about you know why Russia put up Sputnik and briefly got ahead of us in rockets and why Russia and China have spent this money on hypersonics. Mm-hmm. You can go back to the first example, and the reason Russia cared about rockets before the United States did was they wanted nuclear deterrence against the U.S. They knew we were going to have a nuclear Cold War, mm-hmm. but Russia didn't have the Air Force the U.S. did. Yeah, they didn't have a base in in Canada either. Like Exactly. They didn't America have, had a base in, in Berlin. Yeah, they <laughs> didn't have the global basing network in yeah. Japan, the Middle East, and Germany. Yeah. Um, and they needed ICBMs to have a Cold War with us. Um, and I think that same thing is true now. Russia and China have gotten really spooked that the United States' missile defense system, which you know we've poured $40 billion into for, I think, 44 interceptors, they're worried that someday this this little toy system, which is mostly meant to deter nations like North Korea and Iran, won't be such a toy anymore. Mm-hmm. And their fundamental deterrence requires them to invest in hypersonics, which are able to deliver nuclear weapons under any United States ballistic missile shield. Right. I mean, you see Russia particularly boasting this like nuclear-powered cruise missile that can run all day and take circuitous routes. And stuff. <laughs> I don't know how real that stuff is, but, but yeah, that, that, the idea of yeah. that is that it can evade they had the that, anti-ballistic stuff. That crash, which I think like radiation detectors in Europe picked up and they're like, no, no, he's nothing, he's nothing. <laughs> and it very much looked like they crashed a modern Project Pluto, which was a U.S. idea from the 60s for a nuclear-powered cruise missile. Yeah. Well, they announced that they had a, a nuclear-powered cruise missile. Like, I remember Putin had this big presentation where he's like, "Look, yeah. look at how our cruise missile can like fly the circuitous route through the Atlantic and go around the south tip of South America and come up and strike <laughs> San Francisco or whatever." Like, yeah, they, they, they showed the, the, the yeah they were they were showing sort of like what it could do. I think they they oversell these things, but of they course. absolutely are things to worry about because the capability, when perfected, is concerning. And is destabilizing more so because hypersonics, for the same reason that for some period all nuclear cruise missiles were outlawed by arms treaties between the US and Russia, are destabilizing because it's hard to do launch detection. Yeah. And that yeah, uncertainty. They don't have a big rocket. Yeah. Yeah. That sort of uncertainty is destabilizing. Right. But now the United States is investing a lot in hypersonics. Partly for conventional strike, because we would like the ability to hit a target in 30 minutes with a missile that doesn't look like a uh, nuclear weapon. Um, right. right. Yeah. Because if, if you're trying to hit something in 30 minutes, then it's either like you're very local to the situation or yeah. you've got something uh, very ballistic, which yeah, and, and very much like a, a rocket, which could be going, it could be doing all kinds of things. At one point when the United States was thinking about prompt global strike, I think the project is now called how to hit a target anywhere in the globe in under 30 minutes. We talked about putting conventional warheads inside Trident missiles on submarines. (laughs) And Russia, I I think in diplomatic conversations, Russia was like, please don't do this. (laughs) Yeah, that's a bad idea. (laughs) 
we yeah we don't want to like confuse anybody <laughs> yeah totally totally but you also touched on one of the ways this acceleration in speed and warfare can be destabilizing and is requiring great powers to rethink their military postures is one other way to be faster is just to be closer. Yeah. Well, this comes back to, I think, something we talked about, which is the uh, sort of lily pad strategy where you've got like micro bases everywhere that, that can be yeah sort of spun up to do whatever. Lily pads are interesting because they really grew in the late Obama administration. Mm-hmm. So the idea of a lily pad is rather than having gigantic bases like the United States is famous for, like Rammstein in Germany or Baghdad uh, Air Force Base, which is the size of a town and has Burger Kings and Walmarts and, right, right. you know, hundreds of planes and tens of thousands of men and everything. Rather than building these expensive and in some ways vulnerable institutions. Um, yeah, I mean, very vulnerable. Like if, if you have hypersonic missiles that can evade the the kind of like what are those things called that shoot down the the missiles? Like the, the phalanx, interceptors, phalanx systems, like with the oh, close the, in the, weapon systems, yeah, the, yeah. The machine guns that shoot down like incoming missiles and phalanxes, stuff. yeah, yeah. So like that's what's sort of protecting those bases, right? And and so if you have something that can evade uh, that, then you've just got this huge juicy target where you can just drop some, you know, drop a couple yeah TNT on it. It kills a lot of stuff. And I think they're. Um, they're vulnerable targets because they're in the public mind. They're kind of offensive to local allies we're trying to collaborate with. They're, they're expensive. This is what that specific base in Baghdad is what Iran hit in retaliation for the assassination of Soleimani earlier this year. And even today on a regular basis, people, uh, presumably Iranian-aligned Shia militias are trying to put mortars and things into these bases. Right. Um, lily pads are more a way to keep the United States logistically limble, uh, nimble by putting small forces often mm-hmm. in desolate locations with an airfield of some kind, maybe yeah. good for austere landings of things like C-130s and drones, mm-hmm. and a small size force, I'm not sure how large, but probably somewhere in the low hundreds of men which can protect the lily pad, mm-hmm. uh, have a lo- relationship with local partners in the security situation there, but also keep an airfield running for when you need it. Yeah. And keep a cache possibly of weapons and supplies ready for a lot more men. If a suspected hot zone becomes a hot zone. So right. it's so one so way very, to think very, of it is very quickly. Like all you have to do is get a bunch of people there. Uh, you mm. don't have to move a lot of hardware, and you've got a, a, a fairly substantial active force basically anywhere. Right. So it's probably a few hundred guys guarding an airfield and possibly supplies, which could rapidly support a couple thousand guys. Right. And there's some information you can find on these publicly, but I think there's examples you hear about in popular news of these occasionally like right a few years ago when those four green berets were killed in really just unfortunate circumstances in niger that was probably an example of a lily pad mm-hmm. which was keeping an eye on the radical islamic situation in the area mm-hmm. um and there are lily pads now with 
which maintain bases for drones in places like the Horn of Africa. And these are places which shrink the amount of time it takes for you to respond to something just by being there. Yeah. Wait. Yeah. So this, I mean, you mentioned drones. This is another big kind of aspect of things that have been changing over the last 20 years, 10 years ago, even especially like 15 years ago, we didn't have so many unmanned yeah. aircraft. It was just, you know, there was the, the sort of surveillance drones, like fairly basic kind of first generation. It's been exponential. Uh, and, and since then we've gotten multiple armed platforms, platforms that are sort of supersonic uh we've got you know more and more iterations on these like surveillance loiter, ones loitering surveillance like uh, yeah some like random you know they, they look strange like some of these things look strange like the the dark star you know the one it's just like a little sort of saucer attached to a really long straight wing and oh and, yeah I, I, it may or may not have been like canceled but it looks weird anyways like drones are sort of this whole new area of like uh, interesting developments. Yes. And and that's been definitely ramping up over the last last sort of decade. And then I think, you know, that there's still more stuff happening with with these these sort of uh various kind of backpack launched or tube launched uh platforms. I've seen some like tube launched quadcopters and yeah you're there's there's the the request for information from the military about drone swarm technology it's all kinds of stuff right now these are all getting there's been an exponential growth in their number over the last few years and that exponential growth is both continuing but now we're trying to make them smarter um so i i think those fall into um two of the three big pillars of technological advancement you see the united states but also russia and china trying to push there's hypersonics and then connectivity, yeah. which we can come back to, which just helps all of your units and all of your platforms talk to one another and share information. And then autonomy. Yeah. Um, and some people have had this perception that the Predator or the Reaper drones were autonomous, but they were really always remote controlled. There yeah. were guys in uh, trailers, in Nevada or the Great Plains somewhere, piloting them through satellites. I mean, they're, they're sort of semi-autonomous. I think, uh, like they can do, they can they can like launch mm-hmm. and get themselves into position autonomously. They got autopilots. Yeah, and then and then what the people are really deciding is like, all right, which things do we want to go look at, and where are we aiming the camera, and when do we launch the missile, and then what? Yeah, yeah, um, and a lot of the autonomy you hear about talked of are augmentations to that human ability. So there is right. there is no rush to get to autonomy of any kind which can make shoot or no shoot decisions. And that is not being done. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of debate about it, but a lot of the autonomy I'm talking about is perception autonomy and sub-problem solving autonomy like path planning or yeah, right. uh, information sorting and sensor fusion, uh, you know, queuing of objects of interest like positioning, sites, positioning yeah. to make it easier for fewer humans to control more and more drones. Right. Like the Army's RFI, I think you were referring to, was the air-launched effects project. 
um, which is, yes, essentially a heterogeneous swarm of, of fixed wing drones to help the army penetrate integrated air defense systems, but also just to solve problems faster because the pace of the battlefield is going to be accelerating. Mm -hmm. And the time it would take for a human to either control each of those drones individually and respond to the sensor information they're receiving mm -hmm. is too long. Yeah, well, especially when you complex. get when you get to drone swarms, it's it you more or less have to work out autonomy because you have many different sources of information coming in. You have to do all the sensor fusion across these multiple platforms, and there's just so many variables in play. You have to position, you know, let's say like twenty uh, of these of these objects or more. I don't know exactly how many they're they're sort of planning to deploy at at one time, but mm -hmm. but to have a a single human or a group of humans kind of doing the detailed control would be prohibitive. Yes. But moving to those swarms is actually paramount as individual drones, which are really cheap, get right. better and better. Because one of the greatest threats to the really expensive platforms the United States has, like $200 million of 22 Raptor and all of our $1 billion aircraft carriers, is the possibility of lots of these cheap things defeating their defenses and hurting them. And uh, that that's an asymmetry that China in particular has been interested in right. taking advantage of. The explosion in drones is really exciting because I do think uh, it's a huge opportunity to protect more American soldiers, whether in uh, traditional conflicts uh, with European competitors, or in insurgencies by, you know, putting drones closer to the danger than you put the human to the danger. Um, but uh, it's also an opportunity to make warfare a lot smarter, a lot more precise, mm -hmm. and hopefully cheaper because you're not spending money on some of these ridiculously expensive platforms where it actually doesn't make sense if you can accomplish the same mission that a $200 fighter jet accomplishes uh, with 100 drones, all of which cost- $200, you mean $200 million? Oh, $200 million, yeah, the yeah, F-22 yeah, Raptor. Yeah, yeah. It's easier just to talk in hundreds because you assume it always right, has a million at the end of it. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> with, you know, 100 drones, which might cost $100,000, $50,000. Yeah. 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 But that's also a challenge, I think, for the defense industry to get better at rapid prototyping and product management and the cost of projects because as... Yeah, cost is like a huge, a huge sort of uh, bottleneck on some of these, or it looks like it. Like yeah. you see just the, the ridiculous cost of, of the, the F-35 and F-22 programs. Uh, and then like, you know, we only got a couple hundred F-22s before the thing was canceled. And yeah, yeah. And like last year, the United States spent not quite 700, but more than $650 billion on defense. Ouch. And although a lot of that is far afield R&D, you know, to make sure we're, we're thinking about the weirdest things that actually do give us technological superiority. A lot of it also does come from, I think, uh, the legacy defense industry uh, not having a lot of the software talent you've seen sucked into 
the Silicon Valley big tech industry and finance mm-hmm. the last few decades? Well, there also hasn't been as much necessarily of the the kind of like uh, nimble discipline as well. Like, I, I you know, you hear these stories of like thousand dollar screws and stuff. Uh, where yeah. where something's yeah. gone totally wrong in the procurement model and and there's just a bunch of them. <laughs> yeah this is what we were talking about before we actually got on the podcast one of the things that we'll say antagonized my passion for defense as an industry and as an application of engineering when i was in college you know college kids love to get yeah. self-righteous get mad about, about stuff get mad about stuff you know um want to solve the world's problems and i was often the weirdo who you know i was in my dorm room getting mad about the inspector general's gao report for the f-35s cost overruns and and, yeah, and yeah. project delays and there's a lot of reasons for that i actually think the men and women inside the pentagon writing the requirements for these projects and trying to oversee them are really smart and in a lot of cases do a really great job. And when they're in their wheelhouse working on things they're good at, like big hardware platforms, the uh, defense contractors are even really great at certain technologies. But the constantly expanding web of incentives that drive military spending, but also the technologies at our disposal, I think causes things to get out of hand. There's an amazing report, which you act, which if you ever want to get to the bottom of this, I recommend anyone read. It's called The Defense Facts of Life. It's from 1980, and it's uh, from a Pentagon weapons procurement specialist by the name of Franklin Spinney. I believe he was a service member. I forget for what branch though. And he wrote this in 1980. Mm -hmm. You can get a PDF of it online. And in it, he talks about the incentive challenges of buying weapons as the United States. And one of those things is there's a tension between the world of all possible threats in the world you can face. The menu of all possible technologies you could acquire to -hmm. face those threats, but also the cost of the commitments you have to existing weapon systems. Right. And the tension between the first two is that, especially if you're a nation like the United States with a lot of security responsibilities, a lot of security interest to -hmm. keep the world a safe place, the space of possible threats you may face is huge. You know, it could be right. insurgents in the Middle East. It could be drone swarms in the South China Sea. And all the possible threats you can possibly face is more than all the possible technologies you may want, to, you may be able to afford to face all of them. Right. But there's even an added tension to that as the United States is a great innovator and technological leader that we even have a larger menu than everyone else of uh, great technologies that are tasty and we want to buy. You know, mm-hmm. Like the Comanche, like a, a stealth scout helicopter in the 90s or tilt rotor troop transports like the Osprey. And finally, our, our commitment to existing weapons systems and our existing systems of deterrence makes the planning of what threats 
we're actually going to face. Yeah. And what things we're going to buy to face them really hard because we may make an investment in an airplane like the F-15 or in a nuclear deterrent like the Trident missile that we need to pay for and takes up an operational percentage of our budget. And a lot of the costs that you actually see in the United States military today uh-huh. is the repair and like the yeah. refitting yeah. of really old technologies, um, like re-winging F-15s, which have thousands and thousands of flight hours and were built in the late 80s, writing custom software to match software programs written so a lot three of this, decades ago. A lot of this is just sort of like nimbleness in the in the industry and so on. I think I saw recently the, the Air Force or whatever the sort of procurement arm in charge of this was, was investigating kind of like uh, a set of craft, a more diverse set of platforms and technologies that that were done on a more nimble basis. Yes. Just, just to keep them, like to keep the thing cycling faster and, and get the timeline of development down to like under five years and yes. just like exercise the thing to, to have a, a faster kind of, faster time from from sort of specification of, of needs to to flying hardware and in particular related to that was was this latest kind of uh next generation fighter jet kind of program i don't think we know much about it yet but they're apparently flying something and it's apparently very uh very interesting uh, and, and much more advanced than anything that currently exists Yes, you're talking of the NGAD technology demonstrator, next generation air dominance. Yeah. And the vision for a digital century series of aircraft that may come out of that by uh, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Acquisitions for the Air Force, Will Roper. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is a great story. This is a great example of... Actually, I think American institutional health trying to fix some problems. Right. So Will Roper goes back to the Century series of fighter jets that the United States built in the late 60s, early 70s. And this was, I think, five or six aircraft. The F-100, the F-101, the F-102, which were built by five or six Different defense contractors. Do you mean in, do you mean late fifties, early sixties? I might. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, because by then we were phasing those out. Yeah, because yeah, like the F one hundred four was was sort of I think one of the culminations of that, and and what came and that was at the beginning of the Vietnam War and was sort of like phasing up by the end of it. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Thank you. They were the first successful supersonic aircraft in the Air Force, and they did serve through the 70s and 80s. So the incredible thing um, about these is that they were six aircraft delivered within six years of one another, and they came from six different companies. Mm -hmm. This is the other major problem, other than balancing those incentives I talked about, that the American defense industry has faced in the last three decades is centralization. Yeah, the consolidation into like everything's in Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and so on. Exactly. There are only technically three American defense contractors capable of producing a modern fighter jet today. Ouch. Um, Boeing, Lockheed, and Northrop. And in fact, I think only, 
I think only two of those, Lockheed and Boeing, are keeping that skill fresh, delivering new aircraft like the F-15EX and then the F-35. And the vision for the Digital Century series is, okay, rather than committing to these planes for decades, which uh, eventually winds up sinking a lot of your costs into their sustainment, yeah. um, but it's also something that the industry has an incentive to do because when they do the competition, they try and keep the R&D costs low, but then they actually make a lot of money from the sustainment and the updating of those parts and keeping, keeping the planes up to date over many decades. Uh, rather than that, can we actually, uh, through digital engineering, which is more aggressive use of CAD design, CAD simulation, and uh, modern cheap compute delivered by the yeah. cloud, uh, make the design of these uh, really fast, really cheap. And the dream for this is, can we actually get some new companies making fighter jets again? Some new primes. Right. Um, I, I think it's an absolutely inspired idea. One of the things Will Roper points out in a recent interview about the, uh, the mysterious NGAD demonstrator is... If the United States can actually do this, we would shift a lot of the cost of making new fighter aircraft from sustainment to R&D, where it's actually valuable to the warfighter. Right. Uh, but also we could try to turn the tables on China with technological minimalists and go from being the disruptor, the disrupted to being the disruptor. And turning out new aircraft faster than they can respond. To yeah, because I remember in the 50s, they had the sort of X programs where they were just churning out these experimental aircraft. And, and like, yeah, in this, this Century series, like they, they were just, yeah. they were quite quick. I just, you know, they get some oh, idea, yeah. they, they draw something on a napkin and, and like, all right, let's do it. And then they go and do it and it takes a couple of years. Yeah, the like, legacy of Kelly Johnson at Skunk right, Works. Like yeah, there's, exactly. There are countless X-planes who we may never know of literally buried in the deserts and unmarked graves out at Area 51. Right. Which is an exciting idea and something we should get back to. Yes, exactly. No, we, we need more of this. We need more secret tech that is mysterious, gets confused for UFOs. This is, this is what part <laughs> of what America, what, what makes America great. Is that we have secret weapons. We build the UFOs. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> I mean, that's what this, this sort of NGAD kind of thing is exciting for. It's like this, I mean, if it's stealth, if it's next generation stealth, and they've basically got a handle on thrust vectoring, it's probably not going to have a tailplane. So it's just going to be sort of a flat flat triangle. I think actually we've seen some, some uh, drones, this shape. I think there's like a, a carrier-based supersonic unmanned vehicle that's basically just a triangle with a jet engine strapped to the top of it. Indeed. Northrop made that. And then Lockheed had the RQ-170 stealth surveillance drone. Yeah, that... Classic I, UFO stuff. Classic <laughs> UFO stuff. Um, I don't know if they have a saucer yet, but I... I that was all the 50s. We figured out that stuff's obsolete. <laughs> yeah. Tailless and rudderless. It's definitely going to have that. Believe it or not, it's going to have lasers for real. Right. Yeah. 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 So, this, so what's going on with lasers? I mean, there's there's obviously these chemical lasers that we mm. experimented with for a while, which is basically uh, a, a rocket engine where you run 
hydrogen fluoride through it and <laughs> uh, get some light out the side, it, you know, laser light. It's it's the most insane thing you can think of, like it, right. an, a laser powered by a rocket engine that runs out HF. They put but, one of these in a plane once. It was insane. Yeah, yeah. The uh, but you just don't want to be dealing with that. Like the chemicals are all exotic. You need to do these weird chemical cycles to recharge it, like or, or keep it fueled. It's 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 a mess. So it, it's it's the solid state lasers that are are kind of like the the more serious ones now. I understand. Yes, lasers. Are not a specialty of mine, um, but the solid state ones, which really just run on batteries and capacitors, are farther along than a lot of people think. Mm-hmm. We've shot down some drones with them. Yeah, I've seen some of those and videos. The the explosion of these cheap drones and small small short range drones is a big driver to get lasers right because they they can take out. A lot of drones fast without reloading, and uh, and they can take out faster craft than than right. uh, like a machine gun. Because that, that's the issue with these these sort of phalanx systems is the, the bullets yeah. Are fast. You're doing a lot of computations to lead the target, adjust for bullet drop, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the movement of the gun itself. Uh, you can engage faster targets like hypersonic missiles someday exactly. if you wanted to make a hypersonic missile shield uh, with directed energy weapons. Uh, that's an example of a technology that's blocked by batteries and capacitors. So much is blocked by batteries right now. Yeah, Drones, yeah, cell phones, aware. robotics. It's incredible. Yeah. And we're nowhere near like physical limits there. You know, if you compare the battery technology in, in a bird to the battery technology in, in like our electronic drones, it's big, big difference. Like by a bird, I mean like a literal, you know, little feathery thing. Like they run on fat and- ATP. And yeah, like like the, the just the, the metabolic cycle of an animal yeah. is super lightweight, super energy dense. Like if you just look at the numbers, right? The energy density of fat is something like 40, was it megajoules per kilogram? And and the energy density of the best lithium batteries is uh, just under one megajoule per kilogram. So it's like, mm-hmm. like 50 times uh, more dense if you can get it running on, get electricity out of hydrocarbons cheaply, basically. Yeah. And, and we don't have anything like that. The output isn't great, uh, you know, in rate of human beings and yeah, yeah, human yeah. things. Power but we are really good at just running for a real dang long time, for sure. Uh, That's just one of the dimensions. Yeah, there's also like power power density and so on is, is another big concern. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of breakthroughs in capacitors and batteries do start to come either from defense or from the explosion of electric cars. Tesla's spending a lot of money trying right. to build better batteries. So I think directed energy weapons, people like to joke a lot that they're eternally coming, but they actually are coming. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, especially it, it's, it's, it's almost more that their moment is coming. Like as, as we need them more. As warfare shifts to being more about these uh, sort of larger emplacements defended by, defended against smaller, faster threats. Not necessarily larger emplacements, but but like, you know, you've got your airplane, you've got your tank, you've got your base, 
and they need to be defended against drone swarms that are going to come in possibly hypersonic right yeah. then then directed energy weapons are just are just a better way to handle that problem if you can get them to work yeah i believe the air force has demonstrated shooting down a missile coming for a plane mm-hmm. with a laser mm-hmm. and that is a high need application to protect pilots from new generations of faster and more missiles as uh, the protectedness of stealth erodes ever so slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like the Air Force is going to be one of the first to get it done. And the Navy and Army are looking at them for terminal defense against drones. Ships are a great place to use directed energy weapons because you... You have infinite power. You have a ton of You don't have to worry about weight. And you really want to care about being able to shoot down whatever's coming at you. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 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 So, I I mean, this is, is, I guess, a a decent kind of overview of the posture. We've talked about lily pads. We've talked about drones. We've talked about kind of the, the development of things through the 80s and what's going on now. Uh, you know, black triangles with lasers. Um, it's going to be great. Talked about the compression of, of space and time. Just these, these are sort of like our top level kind of conventional warfare developments. Um, yeah. we've, we've taken a long time getting through it, but, but I think it was a good, good, uh, good bit of overview. So now there's sort of a couple other issues we could talk about. Um, one is just, just, I think, where does the technology come from? Like, and this is one of the things that as a society, we haven't always had a great understanding of, of what technology is and where it comes from, or at least not, not sort of formally. It, we don't, it's not in the narrative and an understanding of what, what's going on there. Um, and then we can talk also about the, the sort of social and strategic implications of, of some of these new weapon systems and, and just like how it interacts with, with um, things like political order and geopolitical order. Yeah. So let, let, why don't we talk about the the origin of technology? Like, where 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 do the new technologies come from? How does tech, how does technology development work? Philosophically, or with the United States in particular? Both. I mean, so so historically, like like let's start historically, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, I think there's a very underappreciated fact, which is that most technology is at first military technology, and and part of the reason for this is just that well. There's, there's a buyer that really cares. Really wants it. Really wants it. <laughs> and they have a lot of resources. And and they are big enough as a buyer that, uh, big enough and rich enough that they are able to actually afford to develop new technologies and not have to worry about sort of monetizing those technologies. Because I think that's that's one of the key constraints on, on the private sector developing new technologies. They're not big enough and rich enough to to fully recuperate the costs in their own use of the technology and so they have to win it back on the market but actually the market for new technology is not as conducive as people think it is yes i agree with this there's a reading of history that sees most major explosions in technology driven by weapons development Mm -hmm. this goes back to Animal husbandry, riding horses. Right. What's the first thing we did with horses? You go raid the other guy. We made a chariot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the the Indo, that's exactly what the Euro, Indo-Europeans did. Mm-hmm. This is underappreciated 
And there's a great historian and political theorist, Carol Quigley, who we should also talk about in a bit, who points out that other than the passive things we need, like food and oxygen, order and human happiness and creativity and art require security more than anything. So as much money as you think being spent on food, um, it shouldn't surprise you that about as much money is also spent on defense. Right. And you can see this going back a really long time. If you I, look I, at I would put forward four billion years as the peak, four uh, billion <laughs> as, as the, the number. Simply because right. like, the look first at, weapons designer was biology. Right. <laughs> like, well, look, look at the fundamental problem that a, a single-celled organism even has. Right. It's it's that it has a bunch of metabolic machinery and resources and and processes that it needs to keep intact. It needs to keep fed and needs to keep defended. Right. And, and so its fundamental problem is competition with other possible arrangements of those materials uh, from mostly from other organisms. And so it needs to build a wall, a cell wall, and needs to build the ability to destroy uh, yes. other, other organisms' cell walls and take their, take their stuff, right? And so, like, this problem is very old. It's, it's very central to, to, to the nature of life. It's not just about the metabolic processes. It's about the immune processes. It's about the defense processes. And it's about the, the predatory processes. Even the idea of an arms race can be found in evolution where you see like... No, absolutely. Exactly. Uh, like four billion years ago. Like, longer bird beaks right. and to chase like bugs that burrow deeper and deeper into uh, tree right. bark. Right. Yeah. I do believe this, that all major technology breakthroughs can trace their origins to weapons development. Right. And it may not look like that, but if you scratch underneath the paint, you find weapons. Mm. So the driving force of a lot of economic growth and what we perceive to be technological improvement in the last 40 years has been computers and networking. Mm -hmm. Well, let's scratch under the paint of that car. What is that? Oh, look, it's missile guidance, code breaking, and redundancy. Yeah, like the internet. Why, what was the original specification for the internet? It's like, all right, we need to make sure all our universities stay connected, even if a couple of them get nuked. <laughs> well, we need to make sure that our uh, command and control centers and silos stay connected. Right. I mean, of and, course, it was phrased in terms of universities, but yes. And the universities also. can plug into if they want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But going back even farther to that, like a lot of absurd advancements in machine presses were made in the 30s and 40s in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Nazi Germany didn't have the access to aluminum for airplane parts that a lot of other states did. So they had to perfect press technology to make airplane parts out of, I believe it was magnesium, because magnesium can't really be machined well. Right. You can go back farther. And then you have steel. Why did steel technology accelerate so rapidly between about 1870 and 1920? Naval armor. Mm -hmm. It was all naval armor. The brittle ductile transition zone and phase chart mm -hmm. that uh, mechanical engineers or metallurgical engineers might be familiar with from understanding steel alloys and yeah. how 
as you cool or heat them in different lengths and add different alloys into them, uh, make them either stronger but more brittle or weaker but more ductile. That was really all worked out in naval armor. Mm-hmm. The first brittle ductile transition uh, was discovered because ironclad ships were discovered to not provide the same protection that it was thought they would because the water that they were put in was much colder than the air that they were tested in when we shot them with cannons and on land. Right, right. Yeah, I think I think the Titanic is is related to that a, a little later, but not and, and not quite military. But they hadn't quite worked it out in uh, when the Titanic sailed because in the cold North Atlantic where it was running into icebergs, the the steel that it was made out of. I, I think this is. I'm not sure this is true, but this is mm-hmm. definitely one of the hypotheses that has been thrown around. Is that the steel that it was made out of had undergone the brittle transition, and so it broke uh, because of the cold, and so it it just broke much easier than than it was expected to. Yeah, that would make sense. I think you can see this influence of weapons design not just technologically, absolutely everywhere, but even organizationally and bureaucratically. Right. A lot of project management ideas that are used in in engineering and software engineering today originally came from the project management of some of the first largest engineering projects of all time which were tanks and ships in world war ii um yeah the whole field of like operations research and so on right it's yeah it's and military we take for granted that this huge bureaucratic system makes science happen today. And things like the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health fund biology and cancer research and physics research. But really the big transition point between decentralized science and centralized science was the Manhattan Project. Right. And before that, there wasn't a lot of the ideas of peer review we Mm -hmm. have today. There wasn't... Um, yeah, m- mind you, like some of the stuff that happened as a result of that, like peer review and, and centralized science and so on, there's been there's been like not that much fundamental progress in, in a lot of fields that that happened <laughs> since then. <laughs> at least after 73. Yeah, yeah, at least after Apollo. Um, yeah, but even things like the Human Genome Project, what was this organizationally structured after? It was the Manhattan Project. People still talk about we need a Manhattan Project for... right. Yeah. Well, and, and I wonder, like, with with all these, like, bio-research things, I wonder how much money they do get ultimately from military sources, just given the, uh, you know, obvious but disturbing military applications of biotechnology. That's there. Yeah, it's important to be abreast of those. It's forever true that the fundamental responsibility of the state is security. And it's easy to spend a lot of money on that when you have the global reserve currency. Mm -hmm. I once saw a Twitter commenter make the observation, oh, I found this collection of mathematicians who made all of this rapid progress in algebraic topology from like the late 40s through the 50s. And they all did it all at once and they all knew one another. Why was that? What happened there? And then they traced it back and saw, oh, they all worked together at the exact same lab for anti-aircraft gun lane research in World War II. What a coincidence. 
Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of this interesting philosophical question, which is what happens to technological growth then if, like, let's suppose we got, this is perhaps way off topic, but suppose we got to the point where one polity basically took over the whole world and and had the the ability to completely impose itself and and homogenize everything under one political order the the need for sort of external defense kind of goes away but there's still a lot of internal kind of counterterrorist counterinsurgency uh political control kind of kind of needs but but a lot of the the sort of existential external uh drivers of of growth kind of go away in that in that case and i yeah it's interesting to wonder uh whether that will cause sort of significant changes in in military structure and, and technology structure i, I don't know that may, that may be off topic here but it's it's something like it's kind of the mm-hmm. the end result of of this whole line of discourse we're, we're chasing here yep. which is let's let's achieve more and more technological and, and military supremacy it is an interesting question because it goes back to the core of the security reality today, which is nuclear powers don't mess with nuclear powers. Right. So the United States is trying to do this third offset for near peer competition. And it is quite possible that just like the technology of the second offset, fought for traditional armies, but never actually faced a true peer, the third offset weaponry will not face a true peer again, hopefully. So why are we doing all of this? What should we actually be spending our money on? And what, you know, to realign... Well, we're not there yet, right? Like, like, no. Well, no. we're not there yet. It, it certainly, I, I mean, we may be overspending in some areas, but it certainly makes sense to be investing in Right, defense. but in a world of nuclear weapons, there's a certain amount the external security situation is frozen if everyone does the responsible thing. But how do, how do you align that security and order uh, risk with the technologies at your disposal while protecting liberties, the actual things you, you want to protect? I think you see this in a lot of mass surveillance and cyber warfare technologies and these expensive systems that in some opinion could be weapons having in your back pocket the ability to hack every single power plant in Mm -hmm. an adversary's state or the ability to buy online ads inside their population i think it's true that china for example sees their great firewall as a tool of security Right. Well, I, I mean, if you think about it again, sort of back up sort of a metal level on the whole military problem, you have it's it's fundamentally about like which order is going to be is going to obtain in some region. And we we fought that battle with physical weapons um, for a long time. It's still very much the, the foundation of it. Uh, but but once you get to this point of nuclear stalemate, they're basically what that means is is that you know in many ways total war is too expensive to engage in and so you kind of tolerate each other but at the same yeah. time there's all these other dimensions of power that still exist there's this sort of de-escalated pseudo warfare there's 
there's all the cybersecurity stuff, there's propaganda, there's there's the whole realm of, of sort of ideological and social competition of like economic competition, like basically who is who is the center, who has control and, and so on. Like, yeah. And and so that becomes sort of the the focus of attention for these kind of military it's maybe maybe military becomes the wrong word for it but but for the security situation mm-hmm. and and for that that like fundamental problem of of maintaining some order against other intruding orders it's it's becomes much more about about the you know the ability to make sure that your your infrastructure is secure against various sort of weaponized crime and and uh and, and political insurgency, which are things that can be kind of like injected into someone else's territory in a furtive way. And foreign intelligence agencies. Right, yeah. exactly. There are two really interesting questions in here that history hasn't taught us anything about. And that is, how do you resolve fundamental differences in security standoffs between nuclear states? And how do you resolve uh, standoffs between cyber states? Now, we have learned how to live with other nuclear states we have disagreements with. Pakistan and India live with one another. But um, the intensity of competition that the Cold War was ramped up to was resolved almost serendipitously. The United States thought the Soviet Union was going to be around indefinitely, and then all of a sudden they they weren't. Mm -hmm. Um, And we did a good job of maintaining deterrence in that era, but... If, if by the end of the 21st century, there's two or three or four times as many nuclear states, how will nuclear standoffs get resolved? What is the actual risk of those going hot as, you, as you're doing essentially more experiments with more actors? We're still working towards keeping the security we have today, always, which is really strong nuclear deterrence. But going back to... I think the more interesting and active questions that you were getting at, like I think both the United States and China today are developing a huge array of cyber capabilities. Yeah. Um, and and that that's uh, that's a fairly broad category. There's there's like d- sort of direct cyber capability in terms of like you know hacking each other's computers and so on. But there's also this whole space yeah. of propaganda and, just, and 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 like social political kind of uh, manipulation propaganda um but also a sort of cold war with the cyber tools you do have um with all the exploits that say the nsa and the uh dod cyber command have on say china's government systems possibly even the weapon systems and all the same that chinese services have on ours What's the stability of that deterrent? We don't actually know. Maybe someone will decide someday they push it too far. Is it even a deterrent effect? Yeah, yeah. I think the perception there is interesting because it's very nuclear. It Well, it's very similar to nuclear in that um, we do espionage on one another. Mm -hmm. uh, And it's very expensive espionage. It takes a lot of work. But uh, other than the United States messing with Iran's nuclear centrifuges, which was a calculated, targeted decision, we, I think, are very cautious about 
pushing cyber warfare too far and damaging physical systems in the real world or destroying systems in yeah no one really wants to escalate that game no no <laughs> it's just messes everything right up but those that same threat model of okay an opponent is building up capabilities to influence me to uh disrupt my governmental systems or get destabilizing information on me uh, using completely asymmetric and non-kinetic means uh, is, I think, going to drive a lot of the surveillance technology that there's been debate around with the, with the NSA and the CIA mm-hmm. in the last decade after the Snowden leaks. Because we learned when we use the wrong technology against the wrong adversary like we do with China, China is technologically sophisticated enough and they do have enough mass surveillance over their society to find and either capture or kill absolutely every single CIA asset in China, which is exactly what they did do in 2012 and 13, because we were using a computer program to communicate with them that was not secure. Yeah. And China gained a huge advantage over that. And you have to ask the question, how much espionage is being done in the United States that we do or don't know about because we have over or under corrected to our digital internal security in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of, <laughs> we see a lot of the, the sort of uh, espionage, at least, um, from China. You, you see people, uh, you see a lot of these examples of, of people who are essentially spies kind of like working on working on various American technology projects. Yeah. And and if you talk to people in the security industry in Silicon Valley, they'll be They know what's up. Totally transparent with you. Someone at a security conference, a friend of mine once heard say, in my presentation today, I'm gonna be talking about China a lot. I wanna make a disclaimer and say many nation security services try to penetrate penetrate the systems of private industry just as much as just like this. But the reason we're going to talk about China is just because they do it way more than anybody else. <laughs> and they're the one you should really be talking about. A lot of effort has been spent on building up the United States' defenses to that in the last 10 years. It's something I know less about, so we've spoken right. about it less up until now. But I think there's also the danger there... Yeah, I don't want to live in China's Great Firewall. No, I, yeah, we don't. We don't want to be ruled from Beijing. I mean, that's that's the, the yeah. whole operation here in America is to not be ruled from the other side of the ocean. That's that's why we're here. Well, you definitely don't want to be ruled from Beijing, uh, but you also don't want, you know, I, I don't want my internet to tell me I can't access any server in East Asia, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what? Well, so, so this gets to the question of, of sort of competition. Um, we mentioned the, this sort of third offset idea. There's sort of this possibility of uh, with with China, especially getting more more rich and and therefore investing in more sort of uh, weapons technologies and and uh, security technologies. Possibility of kind of a new Cold War, even arms race in some of these domains. Mm-hmm. So, connected to the thesis that. It's 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 actually this military drive that that drives let's say most technological development. 
Are we then going to see another big burst in technology development uh, of true technology development? Like, like since kind of the the previous burst in you know through the '60s and '70s, we've we've seen kind of like drawing out the implications of the stuff that we had built, but but not not a lot of sort of fundamentally new capabilities uh, of the type that are hard to discover. You know, some people say it's, oh, well, it's not, there's no low-hanging fruit anymore. But the, the thing is, the way we got those things was not by picking low-hanging fruit. It was by making massive investments in, yes. in new capabilities. So I wonder if with the latest kind of push for technological supremacy, are we likely to see again technological development restarting? It's possible. I hope so. That would be cool. Directed energy weapons are a great example of advancements in battery and capacitor technology getting driven forward and spending a lot of money on digital engineering of things like airframes can create a renaissance, which is already underway a little bit in ease of physical world design. Uh, So there's just as the Air Force is trying to bring the cost and rapidity with which they can design new planes way down. There's a startup, uh, Boom Aerospace, trying to apply those same principles to build a new hypersonic airliner. Well, supersonic. Supersonic, supersonic yeah, excuse yeah, me, I, supersonic I, airliner. Yeah, I've seen that. That's a very exciting project. Uh, yeah. Basically, a, a supersonic business jet using yeah these, these computational design methodologies, new materials like like uh, composites and uh, yeah, and and to give you an idea of the type of government spending which helped push that explosion of innovation in the sixties and seventies forward, and what we're spending now, mm-hmm. although that close to seven hundred billion dollar number sounds like a lot, I think it's actually about one-third as a percentage of GDP compared to what the United States was spending on defense in the late 60s. Right. Now, some of that's Vietnam, but it is a testament to how much we can, uh, how much the DOD can accomplish when you actually do allow yourself to divorce how much you spend on R&D from some purely commercial ROI, which is unfortunately what a lot of a lot of modern corporations do. And one thing I think the DoD is doing a good job at is trying to help companies or choose companies to invest in that have a chance to have dual use commercial technologies. Yeah, I mean the the idea that that innovation comes from the private sector without this kind of like big customer of of with with extreme amounts of money and extreme existential need for for new technology is has been one of the big kind of like problems in in how we've thought about this for a long time and a tolerance and think, for failure yeah well I, I think i think a correct the correct correct way to think about it is that technology basically comes as a result of these these i mean we've talked about this already it comes as a result of these big existential investments it does not it is not the job of the private sector the job of the private sector is to like commercialize to industrialize to implement and and like flesh out the, the, the sort of like raw industrial capacity but but it's not the thing sort of actually providing the the teleology it's not providing the fundamental drive forward which is actually coming i mean insofar as our thesis is correct it's coming from this this kind of like military exponent uh, existential uh 
drive. Yes. And that's, I think this is like a key thing, you know, especially in American discourse over the last 50 years, there's been perhaps too much emphasis on the private sector as being the source of innovation as opposed to these large monopolistic entities, especially the state, having enough sort of single-handed need to to be willing to invest in, in massive new technology. Yeah, very few Fortune 500 companies have real R&D labs anymore. Not yeah. many people have a Bell Labs and they, they shrink all of their R&D budgets all the time. Well, it's just fundamentally not worth it. Like if you think of the commercialization potential of new technology, it's you've spent a huge amount of money fooling around with something that may or may not, have, may or may not go anywhere. You know, or maybe you do develop something and you develop some great product. The, the application of like selling a car, which is sort of the most technologically advanced, uh, a car or a computer is sort of the most technologically advanced thing that we regularly interact with. The returns on true technology investment are not even that big there. Yeah, if you're a portfolio manager and you're thinking in terms of expectation values and the ultimate amount of money you get back after all of your failures by the time something hits. Right. That's absolutely true. I think people get confused going hard either one way or the other on the public sector is responsible for all innovation or the private sector is responsible for right. all innovation. The example that is often used is the iPhone and mm-hmm. often democratic socialist types or someone who's criticizing the idea that Apple's an innovator will point out Oh, all of the physics breakthroughs that went into an iPhone get traced back to the DoD. Yeah, well, it's like, of course, but but Apple is a great example of this because they are a great example of what the private sector does and can do with just these fundamental technologies yeah. that lying around for some time. I don't think in a million years you could get a government bureaucracy to build and sell with perfect quality assurance, hundreds of millions of iPhones a year with supply chains yeah, in dozens no, it, of countries. It, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> no, that is absolutely a monument to the modern world. And Apple deserves all the credit in the world for pulling something like that off and for getting the product design right to make yeah. it something pleasing to use. However, when you actually look at the check sizes that the United States and even other governments write for raw physics, chemistry, and even biology research in times of peace, Mm -hmm. let alone in times of war, you are, I think, both humble, but also excited by what's possible. Yeah. And I I mean, another point of, of like why the private sector sort of can't do this is if you look at the actual nature of these breakthroughs, there, they're often not like, oh, clever, like patentable widget. They're they're of the form of serious breakthroughs in sci- like scientific breakthroughs, right? Like like yep. the idea of a laser. Like, can you imagine patenting a laser and like <laughs> profiting from that meaningfully? It it it's it's a fundamental physics effect, right? And this is something that and 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 the the practice of knowing how to how to interface with that and that stuff is just yeah. much harder to actually commercialize, whereas a government benefits from from whatever is able to be injected into its tax base plus whatever direct use it gets of it. So it's just the incentives actually just work way better for for 
government investment in, in like fundamental technology, specifically from the existential needs of government, which is to say security. There are definitely challenges making sure that those fundamental things which are discovered make it into the commercial sector. Sometimes yeah. things languish too long yeah. um, after they're figured out. But well, they're not developed, right? It's like yeah. you've got this idea, but it's, it hasn't been developed to the point of being able to be used. Yeah, but I absolutely do think defense investment from the state can do great things for commercial businesses and actual way of life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, one final kind of uh, thing to discuss here is the kind of predicted future effects of all these changes in in technology and and sort of military posture and so on. How is this going to affect political and social order? Uh, we mentioned that we should talk about sort of Quigley's theory of how the social order is impacted by what weapons technologies exist. I think he he names sort of the late 1800s as the height of sort of democratic weapons technologies in the sense that you know, rifles and, mm. and cannons and stuff were sort of the yes. the the most advanced weapons that you could you could deploy infantry with, and and that was more or less, like more or less anyone could could get access to that, um, and that had a big uh, big effect on on sort of the power of of um, just mobilized masses of people, and uh, nowadays we seem to see things kind of going in in a different direction. Yeah, so. When Quigley died, he left behind an unfinished and clearly unedited 1,000-page manuscript called Weapons Systems and Political Stability. Right. And I recommend absolutely anyone who's interested in these topics, whether it's weapons systems or political philosophy, read at least the first chapter. I need to give credit to... Palladium's own Matt Ellison for uh, being our resident Quigley scholar and Quigley pilling me. Yeah. Because I've only recently discovered this work. But I think it's one of the most fascinating studies of the philosophy of weapons. Quigley's observation is that although power exerts itself in many different forms, wealth, Mm -hmm. persuasion, force, religion, social orders. Ultimately, the structure of governments and states is most heavily influenced by force. Mm -hmm. The ability to project physical power and a state's will to accomplish goals. And using this, he creates a pair of axes for analyzing the forms of governments which you see in history, which are actually dependent on the weapon systems, which are dominant in those eras. Right. So the thesis is you don't see governments in history promoting themselves using the best weapon system. You actually see the best weapon system of an era bringing into being forms of government which are best suited to build it. Right. The form form and scale of, of governments and empires is, in some sense, an empirical downstream result of what technologies are available. And specifically, what, what force projection technologies are available. Exactly. And two of the most important axes on which you can analyze that 
are, are your weapon systems used by specialists or amateurs? Right. And do offensive weapons or defensive weapons dominate? Right. Now, that latter question, do offensive weapons dominate or do defensive weapons dominate, actually determines the size of your states. Right. Because when offensive weapons dominate, it's easy uh, to project force over a great distance. This yeah. is also reliant on good logistics like roads and good methods of communication. So yeah, transportation communication. Yeah, one reason Rome was really great at projecting power over great distances was it just had a lot of great roads. Yeah, they built really, really uh, serious roads. Like if you look <laughs> at the the architecture of a Roman road, it's it's they took it more seriously than we do. Like in the, many ways, like like v huge investment in, uh, to build these roads. It's just the, they dig out the big trench, they fill it with gravel, they fill it with cobbles. Like they've they've got it all, uh, yes. like layers of of rock going in there, and then and then the 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 flagstones on the top, mm -hmm. big solid cubes of rock, right? And and then so the the result is this this hard surface that's very stable. Um, they can take a, a, a large amount of uh, transport over it. That was a military technology. Yes, absolutely. That was to support legions <laughs> marching to enforce the emperor's will somewhere. Right. Have you ever heard the story about highway overpasses in the United States? What's the story? So Eisenhower commissioned the interstate highway system in right. the 50s. And part of the reason overhead passes or the height they are in the United States, it's because it was spec'd out to move road mobile ICBMs. Right. Well, you see this, uh, the, the modern result of that is SpaceX's uh, Falcon 9 rocket. The diameter is chosen to fit under overpasses. Mm, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, because basically the cost skyrockets yes. when you go beyond what can be road transported. Um, yeah, and so they they made it specially so that it fits under overpasses. Nice. SpaceX is a great example of I think humanity and commercial business getting a lot of value out of DoD contracts and innovation. Yeah. But going back to Quigley, the counterpoint or the counterexample to Rome, a large state with good offensive weapons for taking fortifications and lots of roads for projecting its force over distance was when those roads went away yeah and when castles became ubiquitous yeah what did you see a huge collapse in the size of states yeah tiny principates and city states and so on yeah because it was really hard to project force it was much harder than it was just to project force totally locally because you could just go to the castles right then that other axis as you mentioned specialist and amateur is the axis of how many people does it take to actually equip an army and for the state to use force. Yeah. And when you see the need for lots of men, either to hold a spear like in democratic Greece or to hold a rifle like in the 19th century, you see the need to have very democratic states with yeah. direct democracy, 
because a vote that counts how many people uh, believe one thing or another is actually a great representation of power. Power. What the right. result of force would be if it, if it came to that. Right. And and yeah, so the, the question is like how many people need to be loyal for you to project a certain amount of force? Yeah. And and if it's if it's um, yeah, very amateur weapons, uh, it tends to be a large number of people need to be loyal. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's, if it's more specialist weapons, it tends to be a smaller number of people. Yeah, you don't hear about a lot of peasant revolt kingdoms because there weren't any, because parent, peasant revolts got squished by the dominant weapon system at the time. Which is a specialist knight. Yeah, a guy with stirrups and mm-hmm. sword and lance and so on. Yeah, yeah. One of Quigley's interesting points is that the nuclear weapon was an odd technology. Because even though it guaranteed perfect external security, it had no bearing on civil order. Yeah, or civil I mean, security. Unless you can like nuke a, sti- a nuke a city that got out of control or something. <laughs> like it's it's yeah, it's not that right. useful. The Soviet it's, Union isn't here anymore because the Russians didn't want it, not because the United States didn't want it. Well, I mean, the, the United States didn't want it, and they sure did a lot to, to, we helped. to, to help <laughs> the Russians not want it. I mean, another actually uh, example on the the question of, of like, what does warfare look like and what does defeat look like in a nuclear age? Mm. Um, I think South Africa is an interesting example here because they used to be nuclear and they're not anymore. Yeah, they gave it up. Right. And they, yeah. why, you know, give it up. Like, what, what is that? They, it's, it's, there were massive political changes internally as a result of external pressure and external ideas getting into their their internal ecosystem and and it caused them to lose confidence in their model which obviously had a lot of problems but but like just in terms of the fundamental security situation it was that they like you could view that as that they were taken out by uh essentially non-force means as a as a nuclear player and i wonder how much intelligence agencies may have sort of thought that through or whether it was more more just uh operating on on the sort of more ideological level. That's a great example of the impotence of nuclear weapons to ensure civil security of a regime or to project internal power. All the opponents of apartheid knew, and even the apartheid regime knew, that nuclear weapons don't matter. No one cares. Well, what they they matter in getting invaded, but for South Africa's security situation. Yeah, but South yeah. Africa's security mm-hmm. situation became entirely internal, basically. Right. This is how the United States has actually kept the number of nuclear states low in the world, because you know we tell Saudi Arabia and Taiwan and Japan, listen, you don't need nuclear weapons because you have ours. Mm-hmm. You're under our nuclear umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't worry about Iranian nukes. Don't worry about Chinese nukes. We want to provide the deterrence that you yourself don't have. But one of the ways nuclear weapons affected our world and affected the structure of governance and affected our lives is that the best way to build them and then maintain them and operate them is with uh, managerial bureaucracies. Right. You need a large civil service that knows how to build these things and then knows how to take care of them and make sure that they're used under the right circumstances and make sure that 
the use of them is messaged correctly. Right. And you want the de-risking of your bureaucracy to do a lot of that, which I think has changed. Uh, right. Like our, nu- nuclear weapons require a large sort of professional apparatus behind them that is mm-hmm. maintaining their proper use and maintaining their yeah. their uh, just the physical product and being able to deliver it and so on. I, I think another another major kind of component of how it's affected social and political orders is that it's also become kind of an invariant that the like under under like very large revolutions and reforms and internal changes and collapses even you you really don't you you make sure that you keep the nuclear thing fed and happy mm. uh, because yes. if you don't have them you don't have sovereignty <laughs> you have other problems right. uh, and and so like we saw this in the collapse of the USSR where like everything completely goes to hell but they kept the nukes happy somehow yeah uh, and 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 the result of that actually was was a government with Putin the government that I ended up getting reconstituted out of that was very much like this is the government that grows out of we need to keep the nukes and we need to keep the intelligence agencies right and yes and Russia is still able to project a lot of external power yeah just, despite being pretty messed up because mm-hmm. their state became about maintaining uh, this absolute military sovereignty. I think the two of the interesting questions for the 21st century are how are these new weapon systems going to need our governments to structure themselves, to operate them safely? And we know a lot about how to maintain that nuclear deterrent Mm -hmm. with the bureaucracies. Uh, but also because it doesn't affect civil order, we know it's still possible to have nuclear weapons. And even though it's, it guarantees external security and requires a bureaucracy, you can still have a democracy and be a nuclear power because it's not actually uh, useful for tyrants to threaten their own population. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't shut down your enemies with with uh, yeah. with nukes. Yeah. I mean, one one thing though that that is going to have that kind of effect is the mass surveillance stuff, because that's like nuclear weapons is is, yeah. is basically a professional bureaucracy operation, and but unlike nuclear weapons very useful for internal political control. Absolutely. The mass surveillance stuff and drone swarms, drones. It's the early days of drones and robots and warfare. They will be critical to conventional deterrence and they, unlike the nuke, will be able to use for internal security. Right. I mean, right. Like if some, you know, let's say some extremist group seizes control of a city uh, mm-hmm. and or a town or something and, and just kind of like sets them up and se- sets themselves up and says we're not cooperating with whatever anymore or we're doing this or or you know we're stealing that whatever the the government's kind of response to that besides just like raw military sort of like sending the troops kind of stuff it just becomes cheaper and easier for for a smaller government to send in like a more technologically advanced force against that with with Drone surveillance, drone drone strikes, 
etc. And and so I think we're going to see that, uh, especially sort of in the more like volatile kind of Middle Eastern uh, mm-hmm. situations. But uh, you know, like maybe maybe we'll see some more of that with Turkey. Like Turkey is a sort of becoming a technologically capable state. That yeah, they're, is they're a leader enough. in drone tech. They have a great native drone right. defense industry. Right, and 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 they are close enough to enough of that kind of uh, like raw political uncertainty that that they may be one of the leaders in, in sort of developing uh, the, the use of these technologies uh, in like domestic and semi-domestic political control. I don't know. Because I don't know whether drones are going to be fragile or anti-fragile to networking. And I don't think we're going to know until we see... What do we mean by networking here? Mm. Their dependence on external systems and fragile support structures. I don't actually know. And this depends on how good our autonomy software gets. I don't think we know yet whether drone swarm systems are going to be able to function intelligently and effectively in either combat or security situations with or without large systems in the background of cloud computing and satellites and local command centers to give them that human intent, give them that human intelligence, but also to offload a lot of computing that they're going to need to do to function effectively? Well, it seems like the key thing there is that all that extra backup hardware is remote. It's it's It can be in your stronghold. It can be in your capital. And, you know, you project your drones out to whatever is the problem area, but the you don't actually have to deploy the compute hardware to your front lines. Maybe. But, you know, in Hungary in the 50s, when Budapest tried to rise up and Stalin send the tanks, um, or maybe it wasn't Stalin, maybe it was Khrushchev by that time, sent the tanks. Imagine if Hungary had was facing a drone weaponry from the Soviet Union's Central Politburo, but Hungary had a handful of cheap missiles which could shoot down satellites, which actually is not that hard, and a couple cruise missiles which could reach a couple critical data centers inside the Soviet Union. Right. Those yeah, are so fragile the, systems. Yeah, okay. So they're, they're fragile. So that's that's in a in an example of a fairly serious state going against these these uh, these types of weapon systems as opposed to like an insurgency which wouldn't have access to anti-satellite or cruise missiles or a breakaway state. Yeah. Kurdistan, something akin to that. But it's an example of one of the two ways I think we've yet to find out whether drone swarms as the dominant conventional weapon system of the next 50 years contribute to large state structures by being a primarily offensive weapon or being a primarily defensive weapon. Right. It's possible if they are a fragile technology that cannot operate without those satellites and without those um, data centers and that those are easily disruptable by cheap missiles, that it's becoming more and more uh, possible for even small states to acquire because of digital engineering and 3D printing. If it's possible that drone systems are fragile technologies, maybe it's actually easier for a city state 
to operate a drone swarm that only needs to network locally and doesn't need large theater operations networking. Oh, I see that that um, local networking might be it might be that the critic if the critical link becomes networking, then it's all being you get a home, then you get a home turf advantage. You get a home turf advantage because it's all all your communication is shortwave radios and beam forming, or you get a home turf advantage because you're able to use all of your local cell towers and the drones become fundamentally an augmentation of human combat abilities working in tandem with humans to accomplish combat goals rather than something that's dominant on their own because the support systems are easily taken down the other thing you can imagine that would give a big home turf advantage is satellite jammers um yeah like you don't necessarily have to shoot them down if you can hit them with some loud beam of radio and microwave that they can shape the beam all they want, but if they mm-hmm. have something really big coming in, it can uh, blind them, so to speak. Yes. I think this is one of the great technical challenges of these drones is how can we make them robust to network disruptions? Because if the t- entire technology relies on that, it could change our picture of how they're going to affect warfare and how they'll affect governments and states. Yeah, so this, I mean, this really depends on like to what what degree the autonomy technology gets going. Yes. Like this is something that obviously the U.S. military is looking into, but as far as I know, nobody actually has a good solution for, uh, like, like no one has just, here's the paradigm for how we do autonomy. And that means that that's going to be a technological advance that would have to happen to, to get to something capable enough to be cut off from from communication with the capital potentially yes and it's why that technology will take on an arms race shape because it would be a huge advantage anyways i think this is a good place to leave it we've talked quite a bit this was this was a a great and wide-ranging discussion Uh, i enjoyed talking about all these sort of developments in, in military posture and weapons readiness um and technologies I think these are some really important issues to be paying attention to over the next 10 years. And if we're trying to figure out what the future of governance is, it definitely is critically important to understand what the future of weapons technologies is. So thank you so much, John, for coming on. It's been it's been great to have you. I think so, too. Thank you very much, Wolf. It was a blast. Okay, great. Well, let's leave it at that. And uh, we'll see you all next time.